Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. We're working through Acts, Acts chapter 6. And I titled this message, as you can see on here, Chosen to Serve. And so we'll be looking at that. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 6. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So as we start reading chapter 6, it says, in those days. So, you know, there might have been kind of a period of time that have elapsed since the episode with Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that in last chapter, in chapter 5. So some time has elapsed. We know back in chapter 2, after Pentecost, it says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved and you can see as you read through the book of Acts those first couple chapters they start with 120 disciples at the day of Pentecost 3,000 come to faith in the Lord pretty soon we're reading about 5,000 now we've got we've got at least 8,000 disciples of Jesus Christ those are in the early chapters and now it says the church is multiplying so we go from addition to multiplication so I mean the church is just exploding you know, I can just imagine the people are sharing their faith. People, maybe maybe a single, you know, a, one person is getting saved in a family and their life is transformed and their family is looking at them and going, what, what's with you? And, and, you know, it's drawing people in to the kingdom of heaven. Coworkers, family members, you know, are seeing people sharing their faith and just seeing this, this, this new life. And so the church is exploding. The disciples are multiplying. But... We read, it was during this time that there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. And we say, well, uh, who are the Hellenists? I was going to say something really crude, but I won't. Who are the Hellenists? That, that was bad. That's <laughs> scratch out. We're not recording. No, I'm just kidding. Hellenists, who are they? I better stop saying that because I'm going <laughs> to... They are Jews who have been scattered in Greece and elsewhere in the Roman Empire. So, you know, the Roman Empire, the Jews had been dispersed through, uh, through all the different uh, times that uh, God had punished Israel and sent them out into captivity. And so there's Jews all over the world. In, in fact, today there's Jews all over the world. Well, these Jews came back to Jerusalem. Probably, uh, many of them probably were there for the Feast of Pentecost, became born-again believers and stayed because they wanted to grow in their faith. But they spoke the Greek language. They spoke the, the language that was common throughout the Roman Empire. They also read Old Testament scriptures that were translated into Greek. That would be the Septuagint. And they likely had an intellectual orientation towards the Greek culture. Because, I mean, that they had been living in the Greek culture. Maybe they were born in the Greek culture. And so it just kind of permeated their lives. And so that was the Hellenists. Well, their complaint was against the Hebrew Jews. Now, what's the difference? Well, the Hebrew Jews spoke original Hebrew. They read the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. After all, they grew up in, in Israel and in Judea, and so they had been raised in that. And they likely had an aversion to the Greek culture because the Jewish people hated having Romans over them. And so they probably had an aversion to the Greek culture, and they probably looked down on and were suspicious of the Hellenists. Now, I'm not talking about in the church. I'm talking about in Jerusalem itself. So there was a tension already between the two groups of Jews in Jerusalem. In fact, when we get to verse 9 of chapter 6, we read that some of the Hellenists met in their own synagogues. So they kind of separated from each other. So we have these two distinct groups of Jewish people in Israel, in Jerusalem at this time. So that was in the culture. But now, as we're reading in chapter 6, in those days when the church was multiplying, that tension that was out there in the city, it came into the church. It spilled over into the church as well. What was the, the complaint? Well, the Hellenists felt that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
We don't know much more about this daily distribution except we know that widows in that culture, you know, they didn't have uh, a uh, welfare program. They didn't have food stamps. They didn't have WIC. Uh, you know, they didn't, have, they didn't have those social service programs in, in Israel in those days. And so if you were a widow, your husband died. He was the, he was the bread maker, you know, for the family, the breadwinner, whatever you want to call it. And, and then he died. You were pretty much on your own and either your family or friends or somebody. You, 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 that's how you got your support. And so this daily distribution was more than likely providing food for these widows unless it might have been just giving them food to per- or giving them money to purchase food. But I think it was probably just... Food, so you know, supplying food there. Well, the Hellenists, this group of people that were saved, some of them were saved, and they're in the church. They started looking around and going, "Hey, how come this widow isn't being?" And we see these other widows that their needs are met, and these ones aren't. So there's this tension that sprung up. You know, it's interesting. In the beginning of the church, there are only four things that the church focused on. There were only four things. It was so simple. They focused on, and it's in Acts 2.42, by the way, they focused on the apostles' doctrine, on the Old Testament scriptures, and and, and the letters that the the apostles would start writing. They focused on fellowship. That's an important thing, being involved in one one another's lives. They focused on the breaking of bread, which is communion, and I'm sure sharing meals together as well as part of that fellowship, and prayer. That was all that they did. How simple. I mean, that's, that's just church. Teaching the, the word, fellowship, communion, and praying with one another, or for one another. But as the church grew, new needs arose. You know, I think that's such a perfect model of ministry. You know, a need arises, and uh, the need becomes known. All of a sudden, someone or everyone is aware of a certain need, and then God raises up people to minister to that need, and needs are met. You know, Calvary Chapel Rochester, we're, we're pretty simple here. We don't have a whole lot of programs. It's not like, okay, we're going to start this ministry and we just hope that people start coming and that we can start ministry. No, I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not me. When there's a need, I pray. You don't want to become aware of a need. There might be a need that we're not aware of, but when we become aware of a need, I pray. And hopefully the Lord raises up someone. They step in and meet that need. And I think that's a good way for ministry to occur. It's not like build it and they'll come. You know, it's, it's like, let's just meet the needs. Whatever God presents before us. And, you know, I've looked at the different ministries that we've had through the 20-plus years that we've been doing Calvary Chapel Rochester. And our ministries, you know, there's, there's been a season where a certain ministry was needed. And then that season passed. And rather than keeping it going because, hey, that's what we always do, you know, man, it's just like, okay, that season's passed. What's the next season, Lord? And that's kind of where we're at right now as a church. I have COVID's gone. Okay, Lord, oh, well, I guess it's not gone apparently, but it was, but now it's not or whatever. But anyways, oh, Lord, now we're here. We have a, a, a different demographic in our church. Lord, what, what are the needs? How can we minister to the needs? So that's a good model for ministry. So the situation between the Hellenists and the Hebrew Jews, was it real or was it imagined? Was it real that their widows were being purposely neglected? Or was it just an imagined thing? Maybe they just, you know, for whatever reason. You think about this. We're reading that there's multitudes or multiplication of of believers. How many believers there are, we don't know. But we know earlier there was at least 8,000 in Jerusalem. And, uh, And so however many there are now, how many widows would have been among that group of people? That ministry probably grew very large and was continuing to grow. I, I would imagine many of the widows were part of that daily distribution. And from what it appears to be in the scriptures here, the 12 apostles were the ones who were during, doing the work of the daily distribution, in addition to their other responsibilities. Now, as you read through these verses, there's no rebuking. There's no blame being cast on on anyone. Um, Whether it was real or whether it was imagined, it did expose an issue that needed to be dealt with. And it reminds me, actually, 
of what happened to Moses and the, with the children of Israel in the wilderness. I don't know if you remember that story. It's in Exodus chapter 18. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, not Jethro Bodine, but Jethro, he came out to visit Moses. And he's watching Moses, and he sees something, and he gives Moses this advice. And Let me just read it to you. It's out of Exodus chapter 18, verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the, and the, work, th and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. I mean, Jethro saw, I mean, Moses was doing a good thing, but that's not what God called him to do. God called him to stand before the people, to represent the people to God. God called him to teach the people the statutes of God. And now, now Moses is doing all these other things from morning until evening. He was distracted with a good thing, but he was distracted nonetheless. And so he got some very wise counsel from his father-in-law. Now had the apostles continued doing the way things, the way they were doing things, there would have been a huge rift in the early church. People would have left with unmet needs and they would have been disgruntled. And we see that they are being disgruntled. And the apostles themselves would have got worn out and they would be distracted from whatever their calling was. Well, in any case, it says there arose a complaint. And that verb, that, that, that noun complaint, it, in the King James Version, it's murmuring. And murmuring sounds just like murmuring. Murmur, 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 murmur. You know, there's this, like, murmur, there's this low hum of complaining and grumbling. That's what murmuring is. And so these people are murmuring. I, I love this quote from Matthew Henry. I love this quote. And this is Matthew Henry. I don't know. He's like in the 1800s, 1700s, whatever, but it fits today. He said this. Note, in the best ordered church in the world, there will be something amiss, some maladministration or other, some grievances, or at least some complaints. And then this is what he said like this. Those are the best that have the least and the fewest. <laughs> so, you know, okay, how many complaints do we have here? As long as we don't you know, have too many, we're, we're doing okay. I'm <laughs> just kidding. So there's this grumbling and complaining, this murmuring that's going on. And it might have been real. We're not really told. As far as the Hellenists, it was real. I mean, they, they generally had a gripe. But it might have been imagined too. And so verse 2 says, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, I, I just want to pause there. So, so what they say leave is to, what it means is to abandon or forsake. So they're, they're saying it's not good that we abandon the word of God and serve tables. You know, I, I just want to say this because I think this is kind of a bigger issue in churches today. You know, oh, that's Moses, by the way. 
I get carried away. I don't look at my when I'm. I got a little little notes to say, you know, change the screen, change, and I I avoid them. I mean, I just pay no attention. <laughs> Anyways, this is my point. Meeting social needs is important, but not at the expense of the Word of God. And I think that's an important thing because it's the Word of God that transforms people, not programs. It's not. It's not food things and you know as good as they are that's not what transforms a person it's the word of god that trans, uh, transforms a heart and so it's important for a church to maintain the correct perspective on ministries it really is and so verse 3 says therefore brethren seek out from among you seven men of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I just want to ask you something. How does that verse 4 settle with you personally when you read it? We will give ourselves continually to the prayer and the ministry of the word. They're like, it's not good for us to serve tables. We're going to just pray and study the word. How does that settle with you? Does it kind of ruffle your feathers? I mean, does it kind of bother you? Does, does it sound to you like they're saying, hey, we're too important for this menial task? And, I, and I'm just asking rhetorically. I'm not even asking them to raise their hands or nothing. But, but if it does bother you, I just got to say this. It might reveal a heart issue that you have. You know, Moses, here God had called him. I just explained what he had, was called to do. And his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, they developed a heart attitude against Moses. They felt that Moses was like acting like he was above them. And they got jealous of him. But the Lord had raised up Moses for his particular task. And if you read that story, the Lord God ended up rebuking Aaron and Miriam for their heart attitude. And you know, you need to remember here, the apostles were doing this ministry. It's not like they're saying, we, we won't do that. No, they were doing that ministry. But they were doing that in addition to teaching the word and leading the fellowship. And it was becoming a problem. You know, I think about the way we've started our church here, Calvary Chapel, Rochester. You know, it's basically started as a Bible study and, and kind of grew from there. Um, but, you know, a lot of churches, church planning, you know, they got church planning ministries. They like, they bring a team in. You know, you've got worship leader, you've got, you know, Sunday school program, you've got everything in, it's like a little... You know, just add water and mix, and you got ministry. You know, kind of a thing. It's just kit, like, and and nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. I mean, I praise the Lord if they can do that, but that's not the way we did it. <laughs> we came and and ministered, and uh, you know, I am so thankful for those that the Lord brought into our fellowship. Uh, I look around here, and I was thinking about that as I was reflecting on this. You know, there's there's only a couple people, a couple couples, the Reese families, Dan and Tracy and Chad and Jen. They were the like they were pretty much there from the very beginning. I don't think I'm missing. Oh, my wife was there too. Yeah, <laughs> she came later. You know, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, listen, back in those days, you know, I, I was the pastor, I was the janitor. This morning I was a janitor again, but that's just, you know, I did the bookkeeping. I did advertising for the minister, for the church, trying to get the word out. I was a graphic designer, you know, doing graphic design stuff. Uh, youth, I was a youth group leader for a time there, for a season. Um, and, you know, I still do many of those different tasks. In fact, it's kind of funny. Teresa and I had this conversation not too terribly long ago. You know, there's not a single task that gets done here at Calvary Chapel that, that she or I haven't done. I mean, it's not like we don't necessarily did it good, but I mean, it's like, okay, there's nobody here. We'll do it. You know, we just, we just, you just do it, right or wrong. That's just the reality. Um, and, you know, ministry is going to get done one way or the other. It's, it's just going to happen. So, uh, but I'm thankful, and I'm, I'll say this, I'm thankful for all of you who offer to minister in whatever way you can. And some of you, you know, you're limited in what you can do, just doing what you can do in whatever way, because there's no minimal, there's no like minor ministry type of a thing. And so I'm thankful for those of you that have stepped in and offered to help out in different ways. Well, you know, I see some real wisdom here in how the apostles dealt with this issue. 
The apostles, they wise, wisely gathered the multitude of disciples. And guess what's the first thing out of their mouth? Brethren. That's the first thing they say. Brothers. You see, out in the city of Jerusalem, that division existed. But what they're communicating is, it's not here in this fellowship. There might be discrimination. There might be, you know, you, you, you don't associate with certain groups of people because they're different than you or whatever. That, that's, I mean, that's even in our culture here today. But it shouldn't be in the church. And so I love that, brethren. How that, that probably just, right, right there, those words, you know, it's, the, the word says a soft answer turns away wrath. And I think that, man, that just probably diff, diffused right there. It's just like, oh, brothers. Man, you're my brother. You're my sister. Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so here's another wise thing that they do. You people choose seven men among yourselves, and this is the qualifications. Well, what are the qualifications? Seek out from among you. Among who is, who is the you? That's the disciples. So the very first quality is... Are they a disciple? The word is mathetes, and it means a learner or a pupil. And in other words, a disciple would be someone who's a pupil of Jesus Christ. They're a student. In the New Testament, it means more than just a pupil or a learner. It's an adherent who accepts the instruction given to him. So in other words, are they, are they a student of Jesus Christ, and are they teachable? Are they teachable? And they not only accept instruction, but they make that instruction their rule of conduct. In other words, they're a, they're, they're a student of the word or a student of the Lord. They are teachable. And then not only do, are they teachable, but they are obedient in whatever they're being taught and whatever they're being told. That's what a disciple is. And a disciple follows Jesus. Jesus said this in John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. It's funny because you know, I'm, I'm always looking on the internet for pictures to use for our graphics. And there's a group of pictures. I, I think they're probably from that movie, The Chosen. In fact, one of those pictures might have been from... I, I don't watch that show, but, but uh, I know that you know, a lot of people watch it and stuff. And it's, If you ever look at a picture of Jesus and his disciples... Will you ever notice that? They're always following him. Everywhere he goes, they're just walking around. That's what, you, that's what a disciple is. We just follow Jesus. Where is he going? Where is he ministering? Who is he ministering to? Man, that's where I want to be. I want to be where Jesus is. I want to follow him. So they had to be a disciple, first off. I mean, you, you could just pick somebody off the street. Hey, fill this ministry. They needed to be a disciple. The second thing, they needed to be of good reputation. They need to be free from scandal. They need to be looked upon by, the, by their neighbors and men and families as men of integrity. They need to be faithful. They need to be trustworthy. And then the next quality, they need to be full of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit, I just, you know, I think there's a lot of people that have different ideas about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a heavenly influence that gives me some kind of spiritual ecstasy. Ecstasy, you know, it's like, oh, I feel so great because I'm full of this Holy Spirit. That's that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a heavenly influence that I make use of to accomplish my work. What is the Holy Spirit? It's not what; it's who. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's the third person of the Godhead, the Trinity. You know, Jesus was sent to earth as a man. He lived as a man for three and a half years, died on the cross, uh, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven. But he was here physically on earth. Well, the Holy Spirit is now physically here on earth. He indwells the church. He indwells the believers, and he convicts the world of sin. But just as real as Jesus was here on earth, so the Holy Spirit is here now as well. He is a person who we found out in another chapter earlier that can be lied to. Ananias and Sapphira lied to him. We find out from Paul in Ephesians 5.30 that he's a person that we can actually grieve. Now, you might be thinking, 
and rightly so, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, and that's absolutely true. Scripture supports that. He is a sign and a seal of our salvation. And so the next logical question is, well, does that mean that every, doesn't that mean that every believer is full of the Holy Spirit? Listen, every believer does have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. However, some believers are not living a life fully surrendered to him. Some believers don't display the fruit of the Spirit. You can go to Galatians and read what the fruit of the Spirit is. Some believers don't display that. Some believers are living in such a way that they are grieving the Holy Spirit and dwelling them. I know that because I did that for a while when I was backslidden. Born again, had a relationship with the Lord. Man, I went south in a bad way. It didn't mean that the Holy Spirit left me, but I, I know I was grieving the Holy Spirit during, the, during the, those, that season in my life. So what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Well, the word full means complete or fully covered. And so in the context of a surface, it would be covered, a surface covered in every part. There's nothing that's not covered. In the context of the soul, it means to be thoroughly permeated with. I mean, just completely soaked up. A person who is full of the Holy Spirit is fully controlled by the Holy Spirit so that the very life of Christ flows from them and out to others. The display, they display all of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. What is the fruit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So to be fully whole of the whole, excuse me, to be full of the Holy Spirit, and you know I said it, if you were, if you were uh, in regards to the soul, thoroughly permeated with it, I just call that being filled with the Spirit. And to be covered in every part, like on a surface, I, I look at that as being baptized with the Spirit. When, you, when, you go, when you're water baptized, you're completely covered. You don't come out with any spot dry. You're, you're wet, unless you do sprinkling, of course. That's a different... But if, you're, if you do baptism by immersion, man, you're, you're wet. You come up, you know. In fact, um, you know, sometimes it'd be tempting to do baptisms, believers' baptisms here in the middle of winter because it's like if you really, if you really want to follow Jesus, man, you're, then you're going to step into the, you know, the polar bear club for Christians, you know. And just, well, we we've actually have a little tub that we bring up here not a little tub it's actually a very big tub that we set up here and we've done baptisms here and uh, that water's still cold <laughs> i know it's and we try to heat it up as best we can but it's like i'm sorry it's but if you're really committed you'll uh, you'll shiver and chatter for jesus here for a couple seconds but anyways what's the difference between the indwelling of the holy spirit and the baptism of the holy spirit here's the difference it's the difference between the Holy Spirit for renewal, when you're regenerated, you, you accept Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit for ministry. And we see that in scriptures. Back in uh, John chapter 20, the, the disciples have been born again. They've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt that they had the Holy Spirit at that point. But they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to empower them for service. Jesus Christ was conceived, the Bible says, of the Holy Spirit. And he's called the Son of God from, from childhood. He's the Son of God. He, he's, he had the Holy Spirit. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But he didn't enter into his public ministry until the Holy Spirit has descended upon him at his baptism. That's when he started his public ministry. That's the difference. So in addition to being looking for someone who's full of the Holy Spirit, also looking for men who are full of wisdom. So I look around the room here, I see a few wise men, right? Because we all have gray hair. Now, <laughs> gray hair does not necessarily mean, or no hair, does not necessarily mean wisdom. I mean, you look for somebody who speaks in Proverbs. You know, they, they just speak like, you know, oh, you know, we grasshopper, they say that all the time, or, you know, snatch the pebble out of my hand or something like that. You know, what do you, how do you look for a wise person? Do they have this, you know, the big glass? I mean, they just look wise, you know, or something? Do they speak wise? What do you look for? We have a way that we can look for wise people. Proverbs 9.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning, not the end, it's the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So it's pretty simple. Look for disciples that fear the Lord. 
okay, that sounds fair enough, but what does that look like? You know, are they people that are, you know, <laughs> you know spooked easily? I get spooked easily, but that doesn't mean I'm wise, by the way. Um, well, scriptures gives us some direction there, too. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. So in other words, look for a disciple who has humility. Look for a disciple who truly hates sin. And I know that there are some disciples, I don't know that I necessarily call them, qualifies them as disciples, but I know that people are, there are some believers who walk really close to the edge, if you know what I'm talking about. They walk, they're, 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 they're born again, they're in the kingdom, but they're like right on the fence, you know. They're just kind of playing with the, with the edge there, hoping that they don't slip into a backslidden state. No, look for someone who truly hates sin that's not walking close to the edge in their lives. And look for someone whose speech does not reveal an ugly heart. That's wise. That's wisdom. Our concept of wisdom, because I know I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, so how do we find a... You know, our concept of wisdom and God's concept of wisdom is different. This is how God describes wisdom. James 3, 17 but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And those are the qualities that were being, those are the qualities they were told to look for. Men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And what was this business? It was to serve tables. To be a waiter, if you wanted to call it that. Because in the, its narrowest sense, the word diokoneo, and we, we get the word deacon from it, by the way. But in the narrowest sense, diokoneo, it means literally to wait on a table, to serve as a waiter at a table. That's what it literally means. Generally, it means to do anyone a service or care for someone's needs in order to bring advantage or help to them. So in other words, you're, you're, you're not just working, you're not just doing something, but you're doing something for someone else. That's what this word implies. And you may think, hey, you know, serving food, sitting at a table and serving food that are, that, for widows, I mean, anybody could do that, couldn't you? You know, when we were at the uh, uh, Franklin Graham uh, crusade, and we, we got there, crusade, not a crusade, but you know what I'm talking about, the event. <laughs> you know, uh, I grew up in the Billy Graham era, okay, so it's always a crusade in my mind, but we don't call it that anymore. But, uh, you know, I was there, and I had to be there early that Sunday, and so I had to leave right right after the service and get out there, and, you know, this is my first event. I, I, I had a clue of what I had to do, but I didn't know everything I had to do. So there was times where I'm like, I, you know, I don't really know what to do. And, and at one point, I saw these people sitting down at tables to register all you prayer team people. And I, and I saw an open spot, and I go, I... So I just sat down and started, and I'm like, what do I tell them? And so they kind of, and I just kind of listened to the ladies next to me, and then I'm like, okay, I know what to do. And I, and I started doing it. Listen, this may have seemed like a trivial thing. Just sit at a table and hand out money or food to widows and their children. It may have seemed like anyone can do it. And, I, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. The temptation when we were starting out in our church here, it's like, hey, do you have a pulse? <laughs> Are you alive? Have you been here more than two or three weeks? Man, we got a job for you. How would you like to be involved in this ministry? You know, we can use you. That was not necessarily always the best thing to do, by the way. <laughs> it may seem so trivial, but look at the required qualifications for this. For waiting tables. These guys have to have a good reputation. They have to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Why would that matter? Well, the reason why is because there's no trivial ministry. There is no trivial ministry when it's being done as unto the Lord. Amen. Nothing's trivial. There's no place for sinful flesh when we're ministering as unto the Lord. I don't care if you're cleaning toilets. There's no place for sinful flesh. There's also no spiritual effectiveness when we try to do things under our own strength and we're not full of the Holy Spirit. It's like coming up here on a Sunday morning to vacuum the carpets here. You know, you got junk on the carpets, we want to clean it up. So you get your vacuum, and you start vacuuming. 
but you never plug it in. Oh, you look like you're busy. You're doing, you're doing all kinds of activity, but nothing's getting done because there's no power. That's what being full of the Holy Spirit is. Plugging into that power that's not, in, in, you know, not a power. I don't want to say it that way, but you know, connecting with a person who can give you that power, that effectiveness in ministry. And so that's what the disciples said, the apostles said. Look for these men, here's the qualifications. Verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Nicanor, I don't know how to pronounce them, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, you know, Tim, whatever, something, Nick, you know, those guys. A proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Now, the disciples were probably predominantly Hebrews. In fact, we know that the 12 were. Uh, and they wisely chose six men who were Hellenists, because these names, they're Hellenists, these, these guys that they chose. One of them was actually first a Gentile who was a proselyte to Judaism. You know, a Gentile could become a Jew. They could be proselytized and become a Jew, go through circumcision and follow the Jewish, you know, law and everything. Um, and so this was a guy who had done that, and now he's a follower of Christ. See, now he's a born-again believer. So these are the people that they picked. Now, Stephen, we're going to find out a lot more about Stephen in the next chapter, chapter two chapters, roughly. He must have stood out among the other six Hellenist servants. Because he's prominently mentioned in here. He's a man full of faith, and we'll talk about that next week, and a man full of the Holy Spirit. So we'll find out much more about him. Then we're told about Philip. And this Philip is later on in, in Acts known as Philip the Evangelist. And he's going to later have a very thriving ministry in Samaria. In fact, he's the guy who led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And he had four unmarried daughters. We get all this from scripture. He had four unmarried daughters with the gift of prophecy. So we know about these two guys, Stephen and Philip. We get the Prochorus, Nicanor, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. From scriptures, we don't know anything more about these guys. There are some church traditions about them, and I, I, you know, it's, I don't know. But as far as scriptures goes, we don't know anything more about them. We do know in the book of Revelation of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. And uh, it's mentioned negatively. It's a false doctrine. It's a bad doctrine. Um, but scriptures doesn't connect it to this guy named Nicholas. Some people have some theories, but scripture doesn't say anything about that. All we know is that all these men had a good reputation. They were full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Verse 7, then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Again, just like with Ananias and Sapphira, Satan tried to divide the church, and he tried to distract the apostles. That's his plan B. You know, if he can't get you a full frontal assault, he's going to come in through the back door. And he's been doing that for 2,000 years. Some cases he does a frontal exalt, you have the perse persecuted churches, but where they're not being persecuted outrightly, he comes in through the back door. But through the wisdom and the leading of the Holy Spirit, the word of God spread, and here it says the church greatly multiplied. First it was added, then it's multiplying, now it's greatly multiplying, so it's like exponentially growing. Warren Wearsby writes this in his commentary. So it has been estimated that there were 8,000 Jewish priests attached to the temple ministry in Jerusalem and a great company of them trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. That's awesome. You know those qualities that we just went through? They're still needed for ministry today. It doesn't matter what. You can pick whatever ministry you want. They're still needed for ministry today. And so I want to just kind of close with, do we have these qualities? And this is just a self-examination. First of all, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? I'm not saying, are you a believer? Hopefully you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, but are you a disciple? Are you a student, a student of the word, a student of Christ? Are you teachable? 
Do you follow Christ? And I could say, well, yeah, I follow Christ. Listen, there's a cost to following Christ. Jesus describes that cost in Luke 14. And what it boils down to is you need to forsake everything. You need to forsake all to follow Christ. But I like what Jim Elliott said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You may think, hey, I'm sacrificing, I'm, I'm forsaking all for the Lord, what, I'm missing out. No, the benefit, the blessing, the reward far outseeds anything that you would lay down for Christ. So are you a disciple? How about this? Do you have a good reputation? Now, do you, within the context of the church, are you harsh? Are you judgmental? Are you divisive? You know, there's, there's things we can look at within the context of the church. But let's go beyond the church. How about within the context of the community? You know, it's pretty easy to come here and, and say all the right things and act like you're, you know, really walking close with the Lord. And then you go from here and you live totally differently out in the, out in the community, you know. Do you live differently when you're away from fellow believers? Are you faithful in your job and in your family commitments. How about within the context of the family itself? What do those who know you best say about you? How would they describe your reputation? That's really a challenge. We, we went through years ago with uh, 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 The Measure of a Man, book by Gene Getz. It's, for, it's a guy's Bible study thing. And one of the chapters, I hated that chapter, was that you, it's like, okay, here's a self-examination. Go ask your wife. How, how godly you are. And it's like, I ain't asking my wife that. I'm going to ask someone else that's nice here in church. You know, I'm not going to ask my wife. But really, what is your family? Those who know you best, maybe you're not married, but, but maybe, you're, maybe if you're, your parents or your, your children, your siblings, how would they describe your life? Because we can deceive ourselves. I'm a really a nice guy, and then I find out, well, I guess I'm not all that nice sometimes. How about within the context of the scriptures? You know, this guy Demetrius in 3 John, this describes it really well. John wrote this about Demetrius. He said he has a good testimony from all within the church, outside of the church, within his family. And then he says, and from the truth itself. In other words, is the word of God reflected in the way you live, both publicly and privately? Do they look at you and they look at scripture and go, I see the correlation. Or do they look at you and they look at scripture and go, ah, I don't see where it fits. How about this? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? If not, do you want to be? I love this. Luke chapter 9 verses or Luke 11, 9 through 13. Jesus said this. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to good give how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know, for salvation, it's just like salvation. Salvation is available to all, right? That was, that was Franklin's message. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Salvation is available to everyone. There's not a single person alive that is the uh, salvation is not available to. But here's the catch. You have to receive it by faith. You have to receive it. You have to make a choice. You have to ask. So it is with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's available to every believer, but you have to ask and receive that baptism, that filling of the Holy Spirit by faith. You receive it by faith. It's not like, okay, now I'm going to wait till I get this fuzzy feeling and then I know that I'm baptized. No. It's received by faith. That's been my experience. But that's God's part. That's God's part. Asking and receiving. What's our part? Our part is to live our life in full surrender to him. I don't know how many of you know who Adonariam, Adonariam, 
Yeah. Adoram Judson, I'll just say it real fast, and you'll know. Judson Gordon. He was a Baptist pastor, founder of Gordon College and Gordon uh, Conwell Theologically. <laughs> Anyways, this guy started a couple colleges, Baptist pastor. He had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and he was baptized with the Holy Spirit. He describes his baptism with the Holy Spirit in this way. He says, instead of praying constantly for the descent of a divine influence, there was now a surrender, however imperfect, I love that, however imperfect, to a divine ever-present being. Instead of a constant effort to make use of the Holy Spirit for doing my work, there arose a clear and abiding conviction that the true secret of service lay in so yielding to the Holy Spirit that he might use me to do his work. That was his experience with the Holy Spirit. Some of you may have heard of the name Richard C. Halverson. He was a Presbyterian pastor. He was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate from 1981 to 1995. He founded what was called the Burning Hearts Fellowship. This was, he founded that along with Lewis Evans Jr., Bill Bright, Billy Graham, Roy Rogers, and others. And he described his surrender to the Holy Spirit this way. He said, I was utterly willing to be anything to do anything, say anything, go any place that he desired, for my life had been utterly and irrevocably yielded to him. In a very real sense, I experienced what Paul meant in Philippians 1.21, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. These were these, this, these were these men's experience with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I have a credit. I don't know if the, yeah, they found the secret. That's a book that I'm reading right now describing these guys' lives. A lot of it is in their own words. Fascinating and very encouraging. I mean, if you look it up, you can get it on Amazon. It, they found the secret is the title of the book. So are you full of the Holy Spirit? How about this? Are you full of wisdom? Do you want to be full of wisdom? I love what James says, James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Just ask. That's what God says. Just ask. That's God's part. He's not going to go, well, you, you dummy, you, you asked for wisdom before. Why, why are you asking again? I told you, you know. No, he doesn't, no reproach, liberally. That's God's part. Well, what's our part? Well, it continues in James 1, verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So if you ask for wisdom and God gives it to you, you've got to trust that's what God's telling you to do. It may not be the wisdom you're looking for. Where do we get wisdom? Is it just I ask God and I wait for an audible voice? Listen, we get wisdom when we seek it in the right place. And you know where that is? It's in God's word. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You don't know which way to go? Get into God's word. God will reveal it to you. When you prayerfully get into God's word and ask him. Psalm 119, 130. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. You want to stop being simple? Dig into the word. Psalm 119, verse 18. You know, you need to come to his word prayerfully and then expect to hear from him. And look at what the psalmist says. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. So what I'm getting at is you're looking for wisdom? Pray, Lord, I need, this is the situation. I need wisdom. Get into God's word. God will reveal it to you if you dig hard enough. He'll reveal it to you. But then once he does, then you have to, in faith and obedience, obey whatever he reveals to you. That's, that's your part. He'll, he'll, tell you what, he'll tell you what you should do through his word. But your part is, okay, now, maybe, maybe it's something difficult. Maybe it's something like, oh, I don't know about that. So our part is to, in faith and obedience, walk in whatever he reveals to us. 
Now, for some reason, the Holy Spirit chose not to reveal the rest of the story. Remember that? And here's the rest of the story regarding all these men, except for Stephen or Philip. I mentioned that earlier. The story, the narrative is going to follow Stephen, and later it's going to follow Philip. These two men proved to be faithful in a very menial task. Hey, why don't you just sit at, at this table and, you know, when the widows come, you know, use your wisdom, use your discernment, ask the Holy Spirit for guidance, and start ministering to these people. And, and they did it. And they did it faithfully. And because of their faithfulness in little things, God gave these two guys, I don't know about the other ones, but God gave these two guys greater responsibilities, greater ministries. Stephen's was extremely great and it was extremely short, as we'll see. But his ministry, what he did, had a major impact on the church. Philip, man, the Ethiopian eunuch. How many believers are there in Africa today that maybe are all descended all the way back from Philip coming to Ethiopia? Or not coming to Ethiopia, but the, the eunuch going back to Ethiopia as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Those guys, faithfulness, in small things, God gave them greater ministries and they had a huge impact on the growth of the kingdom of God. So let me close with this. What task or what ministry is before you right now? I mean, right now, what, what, what needs are there? I encourage you, whatever you do, whether it's flushing toilets, well, not flushing, but cleaning toilets. You can flush toilets too, but you get what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> coffee ministry, whatever you do. Coffee ministry is a very serious ministry, okay? We, uh, we, we value the coffee ministry. <laughs> whatever ministry it is, it may seem uh, trivial. And maybe you don't ever get, nobody ever recognizes that you're the one that vacuums here every morning. There's people that vacuum here every morning. You, know, you probably don't know because they do it before you guys show up. Or sweeping or wiping things down or whatever that is. If you're doing it unto the Lord, that's the key. Do it unto the Lord because it's him who you're ultimately serving. We may not even recognize some of the things you do, but you know what the Lord does? He sees your heart, he sees what you're doing, and he will reward you for that. And then be faithful in that task because as you're faithful in those small, what seemingly trivial things, which nothing's trivial, but if you're faithful in those things, the Lord's going the Lord's going to give you more greater responsibilities and with that greater rewards for the kingdom of heaven.